You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. Robert Downing covers City Hall for the Houston Chronicle's Metro Desk. Prior to that, he worked as a business reporter in Albany, New York, and as the managing editor of a group of six newspapers in Illinois. He's a 2014 graduate of Eastern Illinois University. Robert Downing, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you for having me. So you are a, uh, you're an, are you actually an investigative journalist? Is that your title or are you just like a reporter for the Houston Chronicle? So I actually uh, started all of this as a first fellow, um, which is a basically it's a two year program that first newspapers puts together for, you know, early career journalists where you do a rotation, one one year, one year rotations at two different large metro papers and was uh, basically just working a general assignment beat and stumble across a lawsuit settlement uh, between Paul Pressler and a former youth group member. And so, you know, started calling some people and here we are. Wow. So you are one of uh, four journalists who... Uh, broke story. I guess it, it came. The first part came out la- late last Saturday at evening. I guess like right before Sunday. It seemed like to me. And um, and then you. Uh, so there's three. Let's see. Two of your uh, co-writers are at the Chronicle, and then there's one that's in San Antonio. Is that right? No. No. So um, we initially got this started. Lisa Olson is the deputy investigations editor at the Chronicle. Okay. And then we realized, you know, that this was bigger, you know, there obviously it, the amount of work, whether going to court courthouses and interviewing DAs and all this stuff, it made a lot of sense to have someone at our sister paper in San Antonio. So uh, John Tedesco, who's a senior investigative reporter there, joined on, and then he actually ended up moving to the Houston area in December, I believe. Okay. Uh, so he now actually works with us there. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then we had, we had you know John Shapley, um, was a Houston Chronicle video and photographer, um, and he was you know as, as integral to this this project as anyone else. And then we also had a data team, and basically there were a lot of people who worked on it. So uh, for anybody who is listening who isn't familiar with the story, the story is that there have been over the course of uh, a number of years into decades now. Um, more than 200, I think is correct, um, pastors, youth pastors, uh, and recognized church leaders, I'll just say it that way, because not everyone's an official like employee, um, have been uh, either convicted, pled guilty, or there's a credible allegation of sexual misconduct with minors. Uh, that number in the multiple hundreds. Have I got that accurate for a summary? Yeah, so um, the since 2008 was uh, you know when when these reforms were I think had the the lo- the loudest supports and leaders subsequently declined to implement most of them. We found 250 people who had been convicted or fa- uh, pled guilty to had deferred adjudication or had pending cases for crime, uh, 
sex crimes effectively. Now, not all of those were molestations or stuff like that. There were solicitations, child porn, that kind of stuff. But okay. um, yeah. And then, you know, going back to 1998, we wanted to focus on that 20 year period because the 2008 reforms were right in the midway point and uh-huh. also given everything that's going on in the SBC now, it was kind of a good, a good bookend um, of, of, you know, with la- last summer, obviously really bringing a lot of stuff into the public view on the subject. And uh, since then, we found 300, since 1998, I should say, 380 church leaders and volunteers who um, faced allegations. Many, many, many of those ended in convictions. We were very, very conservative with our numbers. Any, 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 um, you know, we, we, we wanted to be as conservative as possible um, because you know, out of fairness. And so, you know, we went through every single one of those cases, fine tooth comb, and basically if it, if it even, it, it, I think that there's been a, a, some, a few people who have responded like, oh, what is a credible allegation? Um, and pretty much for our purposes, it was someone either confessed or resigned after it, um, they settled a lawsuit, um, or there was enough public documentation, whether from other journalists or um, stuff that was provided to us that rose to a level where we felt comfortable uh, saying that. Wow. And, you know, same with that, that, that 700 victims number is also um, an extremely conservative number, too. You know, there, there are cases in which someone was accused of having multiple victims. And so for our purposes, that was two. Um, and if you know how pedophiles and sex offenders work, it's, it is no doubt a much, much, much higher number than that 700 figure. So, so um, did I understand correctly that there's a 350-ish figure that's from 1998? Is that to present or is that to 2008? That's to present. Okay, so there were 100. It's 380. Okay, 380. And then what's the number from 2008 until present? Uh, 250 charged, convicted, or charged or convicted, or took plea deals. So there's been more since the uh, the 2008 action. I'm assuming you're you're talking about the resolution that was uh, voted on at the convention. Is that what I'm understanding? Right. Yes. Yes. Or no, not not the. Well, I don't. I guess it would be resolution. Yes. The the report that the executive committee came out with, where they kind of responded to you know, the feasibility and realities of, you know, proposals like a database or, uh, you know, a third party investigations, that kind of stuff. Okay. So, I got you. So I, that, okay. That makes sense. Cause the resolution then probably was in 2007. The report back came in 2008. That's yeah. 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 How the convention works. Sure. Um, and and I, I, there've been, you know, some people have said, okay, you know, the, the numbers have increased since 2008. That is probably, that means, that, you know, we are being more diligent about this stuff. Um, I can't prove or disprove that. All I can say is that, you know, the way in which we found a lot of these cases was through doing broad media searches. And so the further in time you get back, the more likely that it is that, you know, uh, that news article no longer exists or the person who was convicted, may have been convicted, you know, the court records aren't readily available. And so, um, it's it's really just tough for us to say, you know, it, it 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 is pretty much impossible, we would say, to gauge just how widespread this is. So. Did you get any sense that um, 
that as, uh, say, post-2008, did you get any sense post-2008 of how the uh, how these offenders were being caught? Obviously, at some point, victims had to talk. Um, did, did the victims talk to their parents and the parents go directly to the police? Did the victims talk to a church leader? The church leader go to the police? Um, uh, what seemed to be I, the most common thread? I think it was kind of a mixed bag um, with that. It's always, it's always difficult to see, you know, you don't want to, it's, it's tough to analyze the cases on a numbers basis like mm-hmm. that because kind of like someone told their parents, you, you know, their, their parent reported it to police, but they had told a church member beforehand and all that stuff. I will say though, you know, we found many, many cases where people said, whether in lawsuits or in testimonies, um, depositions kind of stuff that their cases were either mishandled or outright concealed by the churches. So has that, has that changed at all, uh, through the years? So I don't want to say, you know, pre 2007, eight and post 2007, eight, but is there any kind of timeline where the, uh, I'll just say cover up cause that's really what most those seem to function like, um, where those have lessened and church leaders have been more prone uh, to go to the cops or to re- to recommend that the parents go to the cops or something like that, rather than trying to handle it in-house like, you know, pastors have been deputized to do interrogations or something like that. Is there any trend line that says, okay, right here, it looks like churches started being more uh, aggressive toward reporting, or is it still just kind of all over the board? I, I think, you know, it's still all over the board. Um, and it's difficult to quantify that question because... Well, that's why I ask you, man. I mean, you're the you're the <laughs> dude. No, and, and, and I mean, that's something that we, ob- we obviously wanted to look into. Um, but it, it's, you know, for many of the reasons I had mentioned before, it's, it's really difficult to, to be able to say who did or... It's, it's, it's always hard to prove something, someone did or didn't, or didn't do something, yeah. right, if that makes sense. And so also, you know, then you get into the question of while there were more cases since 2008 that may imply a lot, you know, that there's been heightened awareness and more willingness amongst churches to report. But at the same time, that also leaves out all the churches, all the cases that were never reported and there was never any kind of documentation or anything. And those are the ones that we'll never know about. So, you know, I hesitate to try and say, to look at the data that we have and say, and talking broad terms about reporting and those kind of things. So, what did you find um, related to churches that, um, for lack of a better term, I'll say, had credible suspicions, or they knew that somebody had uh, been guilty of molestation or rape or uh, some other sexual transgression, uh, and they had gone from church A to church B, and church A had a, either knew for a fact or had a reasonable belief. Uh, that something had happened and they just allowed this person to go down to another church. Uh, and it just happened over and over again. I mean, what was going on in, in those situations? Did, did lead, did church leaders literally just not think it was important? Were they afraid of being sued? I mean, what in the world would allow the pastor of church a knowingly to allow his whatever volunteer, student pastor, whoever, uh, who's guilty of something catches him in the act or whatever, uh, and then just lets him go on down the road to some surf somewhere else. Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues. Some of them, you know, 
related to the idea of remorse, forgiveness, and redemption. Um, obviously, those are central parts to any religion. Um, and so there's a, a willingness, I think, on, on some parties' part to either believe this person has changed and would never do this kind of thing again, or, um, you know, that an allegation does come forward, or someone does come forward with an allegation, but it doesn't quite rise to the level of, of criminal. It, it is, however, you know, one, once that person is later convicted of a sex crime at another church in, in another state or something, it, it, it's pretty clear in retrospect, well, yeah, of course, that is something that it, it makes sense now. Um, and I think there's also, you know, there's, there are structural issues. Um, you see a lot of discrepancies in, in, prosecutor, pro, in how prosecutors um, take these cases from county to county even, rather, even, and even worse from state to state. Um, you know, given that a lot of these victims were children, there's a tendency to not want to make the kids have to get up on stage right. and get up in the courtroom and testify. And so a lot of them got, you know, very, very, very light punishments for what they actually, for when you compare it to what they were actually accused of. Yeah. Um, you know, you see people who had, who admitted to investigators having relationships with four different girls and they get, you know, I think a five or seven year prison sentence for that because nobody wants to testify because it's a prominent figure, a religious leader, you're a child, you're probably embarrassed, there's a sense of guilt to it. Um, and so that allows someone who is a predator really to, even after they've been convicted of something, to go to get back into a church and say, you know, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I slipped up once with a child and I have paid my price for that i'm a new person but that per but you know the church that's hiring them maybe doesn't when if they do call the previous employer the previous employer is is not necessarily wanting to talk to them for fear of lawsuits for fear of you know it just being a very difficult thing to talk about right um, and so that that i think is why you know that there's been there, there's also been a tendency amongst the sbc leaders we've spoken with you know say that Okay, this this registry idea that's been floated, um, there already is a registry. It's called the Federal Sex Offender Registry, and that registry, while good, is based on a hodgepodge of data from thousands and thousands of agencies mm -hmm. spread across the country. It's not really a end-all, be-all solution to trying to figure out, you know, if someone has could be a, a vicious and persistent sexual predator, so. Let's shift from the local churches for a second to the uh, the denominational structure. Um, we hear a lot about autonomous churches, and um, I'm, you know, I've been a Southern Baptist since my parents started taking me to Southern Baptist churches when I was a kid. Um, and so I'm, I'm aware of autonomous churches, and basically for uh, any listener that's a member of a, a hierarchical denomination like um, the United Methodists or some of the Presbyterian denominations. Uh, what that means is Southern Baptist churches are related to each other because they cooperate together for missions and evangelism and, and uh, Bible training in seminaries. But there is no like real structure. So every church is responsible for its own leaders, uh, responsible for its own pastor and pastoral staff. And there isn't really an appeals process uh, not technically, to a higher authority. So there's no bishops or cardinals or, you know, a pope or anything like that. 
that runs the whole show and whose pronouncement is the, the end or the final word. Um, there are local associations that can put pressure on churches that have aberrant theology and force them out, those kinds of things. But overall, there is no hierarchy that forces down uh, pronouncements that someone could have said, well, Second Baptist Church or Third Baptist Church did this uh, X, Y, Z related to this uh, predator, and someone would come to investigate that. It ju- that's just not the way the Southern Baptist Convention is set up. Mm. However, that said, uh, there is a uh, there is a type of authority structure in the SBC through the voting of the messengers and the uh, the leaders of the the entities, so the seminary presidents and the mission board presidents and the executive committee presidents and the staff of the executive committee who carry out the requests and the wishes of the Southern Baptist Convention. So in 2007, I believe, uh, a messenger made the request that a, a database study be done or something like that where it would be easy to find out who these people were. The report back came in 2008. You've already referenced this. Um, what Summarize, if you will, what that report said, what the, the decision of the executive committee was, and what you found out in relation to that as you investigated this story. Sure. So the main, you know, we had a very, very long conversation with Augie Bodo, who was um, at the heart of that decision in 2007, 2008, and is now the interim um, executive committee president, as you know. Yep. Uh, and, you know, he effectively what he told us was there was a, they 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 realized that, you know, because of the constraints on them, their lack of ability to force any of these churches to do really anything, um, you know, rather than lifting up something, I think he said, you know, lifting up a, up a model that was an exercise in futility, they sought to kind of address that this was a problem, but not really implement any kind of sweeping reforms that might have helped prevent some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think you know, there's been a lot of conversation since our report. And, you know, even before that, you know, I think these aren't, these aren't necessarily new conversations, but our report definitely helped, you know, elevate those conversations um, about the, about, you know, it's pretty, it's, I think it's, it's a pretty easy reform to say, listen, if you have a convicted sex offender in your pulpit right now, you are no longer, you do not, you would not fit as, you know, a, church that is in friendly cooperation with mm-hmm. um what it, get, it gets more difficult though i think when you start trying to say you know xyz church concealed abuses yeah. um because that is a an entirely different subject matter and you know affirming homosexuality or having a a, a woman pastor th- th- those are pretty easy things to to figure out whereas if you're trying to say who did or did not conceal abuse or mishandled abuse, you're getting into, uh, you know, questions of who knew what, when all these kind of things. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm, I'm glad that our report, you know, has kind of elevated the conversations about that are being had right now, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult than people think 
to really try and to to excise from the convention churches that you know have 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 you know it 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 seems like they concealed it but you never you know it's a lot it's a it is a much more difficult investigative job than simply having someone is, um, you know, saying this person has a convicted sex offender in the pulpit. So, if you're interested in religion news, and especially if you are Southern Baptist, you really should be reading the Baptist Blogger. Uh, as the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention has gone through recently a series of crises that one prominent theologian uh, has called humiliating, and that is a quote. Uh, a lot of questions about financial irregularities and proper spending, moral conduct of some convention leaders. Um, church leaders have literally been stunned. Uh, this has been national news over reports outlining cycles of abuse, cover-up, and carelessness, and uh, much of this was broken on the Baptist Blogger. Uh, Baptist Bloggers become a must-read for convention leaders, church ministers. If you're concerned about the SBC, you really should be reading the Baptist Blogger. Transparency, Accountability, and Integrity. You can find it at Baptist-Blogger.com. That's Baptist-Blogger.com, where outsiders learn what's happening inside the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't remember in your uh, in your story, and I'm, I think I read all three pieces. Um, I, I did not read all of the ancillary uh, articles and mm-hmm. interviews. Uh, I did read the one with Augie and uh, Sing Oldham. Uh, did did Sing Oldham actually only say one word in that entire two hour interview, or did only one word make it into the print? <laughs> no, no, no. He 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 spoke. Okay, <laughs> that was no. like he's the communications guy. He he just said one thing the entire time. Yeah, no brevity. <laughs> um, in uh, I don't I have no idea what I was going to ask right then, but um, there were other leaders in the SBC that um that had other, uh, issues come up. So you mentioned Paul Pressler was kind of, uh, you were, you're looking into some stuff related to him. Uh, his protege a number of years ago was, uh, the former president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Paige Patterson, who, uh, was relieved of his responsibilities last year. Um, tracking that story i know that one of the, part of the reason he was put in a position to be relieved let me say it that way uh was a sermon or two that he had preached where uh, he had referred to a teenage girl in ways uh, that were less than pastoral if i just would say it as gently as possible uh comments about her figure and things like that um what what did you find in your investigation um not specifically about Patterson and Pressler, but in the 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 leadership of the SBC outside of the executive committee, um, w- was there or is there really a culture uh, in the upper echelons of the SBC that allowed this type of uh, behavior to flourish? Now, since your since your story, Al Mohler, of course, has come out with a very in depth apology. Uh, mentioning Rachel Denhollander by name um, and regret for not listening to the victims and and such as that. Uh, did the leaders play a role in the culture that allowed this to go on, even if they weren't like specifically involved in the, the transgressions themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, they're not kings. Sure. They're not popes. You know, the SBC president is, is while I think to a lot of people, would they would imagine that person has, you know, sweeping ability to, 
to implement reform, but they, I mean, they don't. Right. Uh, but I mean, that said, I think, you know, we had a graphic in our first story that showed, I think, six former SBC presidents or, or high-ranking officials who had either been accused of sexual misconduct themselves or had, you know, on various occasions been accused of mishandling or concealing abuses. Mm-hmm. And while I don't think, I, I, I guess I, I, I think the polity of the convention makes it, you know, say, oh, because ABC president did this thing, it reverberated through the entirety of the convention and its 47,000 churches. But I mean, they are extremely influential people. They're, they're high profile people. And the way that they talk about things, the way that they handle these things, it, it, I think it does set an example it, it, to some degree. I mean, I think some of the comments that were made about activists, SNAP in particular, by, by figures, I, I think it would be difficult to say that those kind of comments that are dismissive of survivors of sexual assault and people trying to prevent it, I, I would, it would be strange to... for someone to try to argue that those comments don't matter and don't have some sort of effect on how the convention writ large views these things. Um, If we can, if we can compare, uh, you brought up snap Um, the movie spotlight features uh, snap as well. uh, Survivors network of those abused by priests. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, And, and the, the same thing happened there. I remember the scene where um, the actor who played Phil, uh, I think it's Shaviano uh, comes in and he's got this evidence of sexual abuse by the priests in the, uh, I guess the Boston area parishes and the reporters that are on the case, the spotlight team from the Boston globe, um, you know, are just astounded and, he brings up the fact that, Hey, I brought this guy to you guys, whatever it was four years ago or something like that. And it was ignored. Um, is, is part of the current, um, unveiling of, Hey, we, we believe these people now we're starting to understand is some of this real. I mean, were we in a Victorian era era where you just didn't speak of these things in polite company and that allowed pedophiles to flourish? Uh, did we just not believe kids when they came forward uh, I know, I know there were instances where kids were, uh, were just told, you, you know, that didn't happen to you or we, we're not going to do anything. And don't you ever tell anybody about this ever again. And I'm not referring to the Catholic situation or to the Southern Baptist situation, just people that I've known through the years that have experienced this, uh, were told by their parents or other authorities don't tell. So were we in an era where it was not looked upon with favor to tell these kinds of things? And now uh, with the shifting of the cultural sands a little bit that we're now more open to it? Or is, is there another explanation? It, it seems to me that uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, this was going on and it was going on at the rate that it's going on today. It just did not get reported. And now it seemingly does. Is the door open for people to come forward and say, I'm not going to be ashamed of this anymore? I mean, I think that, you know, the spotlight investigation really is important to the willingness of people, I think now in all institutions, I'm not just talking about the SBC, mm-hmm. to recognize, you know, that they, they are not, a, no, no, no institution is immune from predators. These are charismatic people who 
um, to quote an investigator we talked to, you know, they don't just groom the victim, they groom the community. Mm. And so when they do face an allegation, you know, there's, there's a tendency to give them the benefit of the doubt. And also, a, I think also sometimes a certain sense of guilt and shame on the part of leaders who they, you know, they've been in this leadership position for so long that the idea that someone could pull the wool over their eyes um, is is really tough to grapple with. Oh, and I that's think a good point. That, that that they sometimes rather than doing, you know, confronting that they were deceived and duped, they just allow that person to leave quietly. And sometimes it has tragic consequences, you know, one or two churches down the road. Um I also think that, you know, for for victims and survivors, the Internet and the you know groups like SNAP have made it a lot easier for them to find communities of support. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, before the Internet and all this stuff was readily known and resources were available, there was a lot of these people, you know, left to just handle this by themselves. You know, they were neglected by their church. They were shunned. They were shamed. And so they found themselves completely and totally alone with no support structure. So what percentage of the people that you, uh, that your team investigated, what percentage of the people who had been victimized, um, had stayed silent for years or, um, you know, just a, a crazy long amount of time because they had been shamed in the beginning by someone. Now, not like a feeling of shame that, you know, that something had happened to them. They were just, you know, ashamed to tell anyone about it, but that they had been shamed by someone into not telling anything for a long, long period of time. Did you get any, any feel for how often that had happened? You know, it happened a lot. I'll Mm -hmm. say that I I hesitate to say specific number percentage, but, uh, and, because I also, you know, those are the, also the, the kind of cases that, you know, I referenced um, earlier that, you know, for every one case we found where a child was believed, how many of them weren't believed, were shamed into silence. And even when they did try to speak out, they found that, you know, their claims were past the statute of limitations for criminal prosecution. Um, I mean, there are many cases like that. And Ann Miller's case, for example, you know, she wait or she it took her almost a decade to really recognize that she was that what she thought was a relationship with a, a an alleged relationship with a youth pastor was in fact abuse. Mm. And luckily, Texas um, doesn't that has has really opened its statute of limitations for sex crimes against children. But you know, in other in other states, there are a lot of a lot of you know David Pittman, who was also featured in our story. His the man he alleges abused him and who has been accused by two other men of abuses, you know, they met with um, law enforcement. They did everything that they possibly could and only found out that, you know, their their claims were too old, which in many ways is as traumatizing as the abuse itself. Yeah. Um, you know, finally, after, after decades of dealing with this guilt and this confusion and this trauma, you get, you go to, You've lost faith in the church, but you still have faith that justice can be done through law enforcement. And you find out that because that, you know, it, in many ways, it makes it seem like that you're being told that it's your fault all yeah. over again because you waited too long. So, mm. 
You mentioned, uh, I want to loop back really quickly here uh, at the end um, about the Paul Pressler case where you were doing some investigating there. What exactly were you investigating and what led you to be investigating uh, that particular case at this time? So about 11 months ago, I'm, I'm uh, what, what some people would refer to as a loser. And uh, <laughs> rather than... <laughs> Rather, rather than, uh, you know, go out on, on some, I think it was a Friday night or something. I was sifting through federal court records and. Wow. You have the life, man. I know. I know. Um, and the, uh, Pressler case had gotten moved from Harris County court to federal court for a little bit. And I saw the name and I was like, Oh, I I remember us reporting on that lawsuit when it first came out, might Mm -hmm. as well check in on it. Um, cause that's something that, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of newsrooms just don't have the time or resources to do anymore which is you know they write about an initial claim they poke some holes or you know do some do some digging on the veracity of those claims but then they just kind of it just kind of gets forgotten about and so i clicked on just started looking through it and stumbled across a four hundred fifty thousand dollar lawsuit that he had or four hundred fifty thousand dollar lawsuit settlement between him and the man currently suing him alleging decades of rapes um and so I started calling some, I, you know, called his lawyer, called, started basically just putting phone calls into people who had written about this stuff, you know, people like Krista Brown and Amy Smith and Dee Parsons who have been blogging about this kind of stuff for years. And right. they all pretty much said, yeah, if you think that this is an isolated incident, we have, we have, boy, do we have some websites to show you. <laughs> and so that kind of, you know, turned into, um, me just really collecting cases as many cases as I could. And over the course of probably three months, I was up to hundreds, um, dating back to the early nineties up to, you know, 2018. And so it pretty quickly became clear that we were onto something and that these bloggers who have been, who really dedicated their lives to this work were, were very much not, not, uh, understating the issue. Um, and so, you know, since then, the Pressler, the uh, sexual assault claims filed against him in the lawsuit have been dismissed again because of statute of limitations. Um, but, yeah, it, it really was the thing that kickstarted this whole project. So, In uh, in those cases where they're dismissed because of statute of limitations, there, there's not even like testimony uh, given. It's just like, oh, we can't do this because there's no possibility of a conviction. So the case is dismissed. Isn't that right? Or is that right? Um, in, in some cases, in most cases, yes. In the Pressler case, um, you know, Dwayne Rollins, who is the plaintiff and who's been outspoken enough where I feel comfortable, you know, he's okay with his name being used. Right. Uh, he basically argued that, you know, he, he mo- pretty much from the time he turned 18 until, you know, I think he's in his 50s now. He was in and out of prison dealing with alcoholism, drug use, all this kind of stuff as a what he says is a coping mechanism for kind of trying to just suppress what had happened to him or what mm-hmm. he says that happened to him. And then he had an outcry statement to a, a psychiatrist in prison and it all just kind of, so someone's described it. Another person has described it to me is this, you know, you have this box on the top shelf of your closet that, you know, you, it's always there. You kind of see it out of the corner of your eye and then you, you never really know what's in it. And then one day 
you're pulling a shoe off the rack or something and the box falls down and hits you in the head and yeah. it's just and it, and all the contents spill out yeah. and it's and so yeah what they were arguing is that you know the statute of limitations window for rollins's claims should have started i can't remember exactly when but it that that the claims were inside the statute of limitations because he had not even realized that he had been abused and um I know that they're planning to appeal the uh, dismissal of those claims, but um, you know it's obviously an uphill battle. So, my guest today on Uncommentary has been Robert Downen of the Houston Chronicle. Uh, Robert, where are you on Twitter? I'm I'm at at, at Rob Downen Cron. That's R O B D O W N E N C H R O N. Well, man, thanks for your work, and I hope that you'll continue. And um, here's to you breaking more important stories. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you'd take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. If you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month, swag level three bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet for the remainder of season one. And then as soon as season two becomes available, I'll send you one of those as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.